going to invite you to go to John chapter 4 with me this morning. If you are new to the church today, I'm preaching through the gospel of John, and I'm at John chapter 4, 1 to 45. And because I can preach large portions of Scripture in very short amounts of time, this is my third attempt to get through this passage of Scripture. Um, but today we're going to be looking at predominantly verse 29 down through the end of uh, verse 30, 42, I think it is. But I want to put something on the screen in front of you. Um, I've entitled this series of sermons, although we're doing John, which is Conversations with Christ. And the reason why I chose the Gospel of John is because if you read it, you'll find that Jesus interacts with various different human beings. And uh, he's talking with them, men, women, older people, young people, groups, all types of things, the religious and the non-religious. And this particular woman, an unnamed, no-faced, Samaritan, morally corrupt woman, is uh, the complete opposite of chapter 3 when Jesus has this prolonged conversation with a guy by the name of Nicodemus. We know his name. We know that he's a Jewish rabbi. He would have been respected. He was male in that culture. That meant something. And so you have this male somebody up against this female nobody. And what is amazing is that it's the female who gets it. And last week we looked at the talk with the disciples. I've kind of put this into three different talks. There's the talk with the woman, there's the talk with the disciples, and today we're going to look at the talk with the town. And I've really summarized this as the conversation that led to conversion that leads to mission. Now, before we do that, though, I want to show you uh, a little something here. Can we put up the, I want to show you two different people. So I want to go through a bit of an exercise with you. So, Because it's hard sometimes to go back in time 2,000 years. So these are just two faces, two people. You don't know them. You don't know their name. The only thing better than the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 is I can put faces to these two people. But right now I want you to stare at them and I want you to imagine who they are. What's their story? Where do they come from? If they could talk to you, what would they say? What are you already drawing some conclusions about just by what you see? See, I've, I've told you that it's hard in the Bible here with this for you to really feel the palpable tension of the culture that was involved with Jesus, a Jewish rabbi male, talking to an unveiled Samaritan woman. It's really hard for me to give you a 21st century idea of the tension of this unless you live out right now looking at two people that you don't know and you make assumptions about who they are. Are these good people or bad people? Are these the people that if you were walking down the street and you saw them walking at you, what would your thought process be? How would you view them? Because believe it or not, you do this every day of your life. You do it in every avenue of your life. At work with people you've never met. You do it at the mall. You do it at the airport. It is said of one of my heroes, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, that he would go to the market and he would sit and he loved to watch people. He loved to watch how humans interacted. And I find as I've traveled a lot this past year, especially in airports, I love to find a little perch for myself at an airport and just walk. Everybody walking up and down and you see them. Some are just strolling. Some are so completely chilled out. Some, you know, they feel like life is about to end unless they get to whatever gate it is they're getting to. Some are panicked. Some are stressed. What are, what are you doing? When you look at these faces, what assumptions do you make? 
about who they are. Now really do it. Play, play along. Assign personality. Family upbringing. Are they married or single? Do they believe in the church or not in the church? What, what do you think is going on here? Now, I'm setting you up because you're going to hear from them now. So, Jordan, let's play the first video. I want you to hear from one of these faces. My name is John Joseph. From an early age, I was totally immersed in sin. And as I grew older, the nature and degree of my sin became more grievous. As I transitioned into college and early adulthood, the roots of sin that had taken hold in the past began to flourish and define my life in every possible way. Giving myself completely to sin, I eventually became an alcoholic, <coughs> a drug user, and a cocaine dealer. I dishonored my parents. I was a liar. I used everyone and everything for personal gain and was full of lust, greed, and hate. But God, in his mercy, removed me from my surroundings and brought me to Baltimore, Maryland. In late 2008, while at Blockbuster, I came across Bill Maher's mockumentary entitled Religious. After watching the documentary, I was annoyed at Maher's obvious bias and his portrayal of religion. And so I got on Google and searched for a debate on Christianity. What I found was Ravi Zacharias, and over the course of the next year, Ravi would completely dismantle everything I believed in. As I continued to search for more teaching on the web, God in his mercy would eventually lead me to Desiring God Ministries. On January 5th of 2010, I sat down to listen to a message on John 3.16. And prior to beginning the sermon, Mr. Piper prayed that somebody would be brought from the darkness and into the light. Being faithful and true, our Father answered. Not five minutes into the message, as I sat devastated by the reality of my sin, and the impending judgment that awaited, I knew that I deserved hell. I knew that I was going to hell. I was, however, then overwhelmed by the knowledge that my sins had been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And our Father's kindness and mercy did not stop at salvation, as he has continued giving in ways beyond what I could ever imagine. He eventually led me to a good church, where through sound teaching and fellowship, he has caused me to grow. And has changed my heart to want to serve him every area of my life for the rest of my life and for the glory of his name. Had you seen me three years ago, you would have likely thought I was unreachable. There's, like, seriously, there's no, no reason for me to be standing here. I still can't believe that I'm standing here outside of God's power. But I stand here by grace as a testament to the power of the gospel. There is not a soul in this world that is too lost or too dead or too far from God's reach. You need to tell everyone this gospel. Do not underestimate the power of this gospel so that's one testimony now I want you to listen to the other gentleman of the picture I gave you and I want you to realize that you're going to hear something completely different and for those of you that have grown up in church for those of you that have been around church your whole lives I want you to particularly listen to this testimony and listen specifically to what he says. And hopefully this will make John 4 make a little bit more sense. So let's show you this one. My name is Tripp. Uh, I've never been drunk. I've never done any drugs. And I never lived a wild lifestyle. But I was hopelessly dead in my sins. I grew up in the Bible Belt, uh, 
and I was really confused about what it actually meant to be a Christian. Everybody I knew professed to know Jesus, but there really wasn't much distinction in their lifestyle, so I was just a little bit confused. Uh, when I was about five or six years old, I repeated a prayer after a children's pastor, and I was told that this made me a Christian, and I just went on assuming that I was a Christian. But when I look back, I don't really think I was because my sin didn't bother me, and Jesus was not precious to me. Uh, but I went on professing to know Jesus with my lips and spitting in his face with my lifestyle. By many people's standards, they would think I was a pretty good kid, but I was self-absorbed, and I was very far from God. When I was about 13 years old, uh, I started to get involved in this youth group really just for social reasons. And uh, the youth pastor that all was faithful to preach the word. And God began to open my eyes and different truths started to click about what the gospel was. God's holiness started to click and uh, my sin started to click. And the fact that I'd been separated from God because of my sin started to click. And even what Jesus had done on the cross began to click. Uh, when I was about 14 years old, I uh, went to this youth event with this church. It was a preacher, and that preacher called people to repentance. And in that moment, all of that gospel truth that I started to understand weighed in on my heart. And God graciously opened my eyes, moved me to repent and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. After that, my entire life changed. I mean, God gave me an incredible desire to know him in his word. I mean, I remember the first time that I, I started reading the Bible, and, and I read something one night, and, and it stuck out to me. And then the very next day, something happened that that scripture applied to, and it blew me away that this old book I was reading actually had power to transform my life here and now. Blew me away. And God just began to transform my life, and God was so gracious to send just loads of godly men in my life to teach me the word and to live out the word in front of me and to help me to follow after Christ. And God has even been gracious to make me a minister of that very same gospel that he used to rescue me. And, you know, I could easily right now still be deceived about my relationship with God. But the good news about Jesus rocked me and opened my eyes. Do not underestimate the power of the gospel. I did this exercise so you could appreciate what it means when we look at people and we make snap decisions about who they are, when we look at people and we make assumptions about where they come from or where they're going, when we make assumptions about who's reachable and who isn't, who's on what social standing. And folks, I, I want you to know we do this every day. So as you take all of that with you, let's go to John chapter 4. And I want to read this rather long, long passage of Scripture again. I want to start in verses 1 so you get it. And I want you to think about how you've just been bombarded with two faces that you didn't know. And yet likely if I'd have spent you here, you'd have had a hard time giving me their stories the way you did. And you need to understand why this is so passionate to me. I was in the room when both these guys spoke. I've met these men. I've talked with them. I've gotten a bit more of their, their background and their story. And it was incredible because I remember when Tripp stood up there and I wondered, you know, what, what, what I made all kinds of assumptions about Tripp and what he was going to say. And when he stood up and said, I've never been drunk. I've never done drugs. I've never done this. And I was like, well, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> and yet I related to him because I was raised in a church. I, I knew what it was to play church. I knew what it was at five years old to pray a prayer. I knew what it was to make all kinds of assumptions only to be confronted with my sin when I was 21 years old. 
And yet, how many of us would have looked at the guy in the suit, made assumptions that maybe he was a businessman or something like that, and yet he told you he was a drug dealer and needed Jesus just as much as anybody else. And so I want you to see the tensions of this. So let's go to the Word of God and let God speak to us now as we think about this faceless, nameless woman. I want you to see the tension because she kind of represents Joe's testimony there that he gave you, John's testimony, sure. And, and then you get the disciples and they're a little bit like Trip. They've kind of lived the good life. And you're going to see how they kind of tried to put this woman in a compartment. And then you're going to see this town of unnamed people. And so let's look at God's word and Listen to God's word speak to us. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Now, you get some background. John the Apostle puts in brackets in verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples. So rumors were spreading about Jesus that simply weren't true. But there's a cloud of jealousy. There's a cloud of suspicion. And verse 3 says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to. Some of your translations might have say, and he must pass. He had to go. The idea was he deliberately chose to go through Samaria. He did not have to by geography. He did not have to by what Jewish people normally did. They normally walked around Samaria because the Samaritans, as you know, were half-breeds. They were half Jewish, half Gentile. They were despised. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. And so Jesus, if he had done what was done normally, would have walked around. But no, our passage says he had to walk through or go to Samaria. In verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. This was a landmark. It was important to Jewish people, important to the Sumerians. And notice, so Jesus, very humanly, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And again, if you want to know the background, that's noon. So it's high noon. That's the reason you have that expression. The sun is at its zenith. It's hot. He's been walking. He's tired. He's thirsty. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, which, by the way, is abnormal. Women would have come to that well either in the morning or in the evening. This is abnormal. This is a woman coming alone. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, notice this background in verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So it's just Jesus and this woman alone at the well. Now look at the shock of the woman, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then you're told why. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. (laughs) Jesus, in verse 10, answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, Yeah, everyone who drinks of this water, though, will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, I think what is obvious to us all, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water again. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, now our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, woman. Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. I tell you, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ, and I know when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then, His disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But notice, no one said to the lady, what do you seek? And no one said to Jesus, why are you talking with her? And so, verse 28 is very important for this morning. The woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him being Jesus. Now, meanwhile, so back at the well with the disciples and Jesus, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. (laughs) But Jesus said, I have had food. I have food to eat that you know not about. And so the disciples in verse 33 said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They missed the point altogether. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say? There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Now to put this in context, you already know the Samaritans are coming out of the town. What you need to know is they were wearing white robes. Okay, so here they come with these flowing white robes and a big mass and they're coming. And it would have looked very similar to the whiteness of the harvest. And so he gives them an illustration. He says, look, lift up your eyes. The field are white to harvest. Verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving his wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Why? So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Jesus says to them, I sent you to reap for that that for which you did not labor. Others have labor and you have entered into that labor. Now, 
Back to the Samaritans. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him. Notice this. If you write in your Bibles, don't be afraid. Because of the woman's testimony. This is why they do it. And here was her testimony. He told me all that I ever did. That's the extent of her testimony. So, verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. That's Jesus' word. And verse 42, so they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, get this, the Savior of the world. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now we've looked to the book. Now let's talk to the author. Let's pray for a second before we consider his word. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the opportunity to read your word. And may the reading of your word just bless us. Lord, may it be quick and powerful and penetrate the hearts and minds of myself and everybody that's here. Lord, take my next few minutes and help me just to unpack your word and apply it to my life and invite my friends, my family, my loved ones that are here before me, invite them to apply this as well, Lord, knowing that when we follow you, that's the safest place to be. And so we give it to you now in Christ's name, amen. So again, we started with this conversation right? Jesus speaks to this woman, and we learned. I tried to fill in the gaps as I was reading it. She's Samaritan. She's had five husbands and living with a guy, so she's morally bankrupt, which gives you a cue as to why at noon she's going to a well alone. She's not with all the other ladies, so not only do the Jews despise her, in her own community they despise her. She's really ostracized by everybody. She's desperate. And so can you imagine her shock when a Jewish rabbi looks at her and doesn't just address her, but asks her for help? (laughs) He doesn't just say hello. He doesn't acknowledge your presence. He says, would you help me? Would you give me something to drink? And she's shocked, okay? But then we learn that there is her conversion because she says, oh, I know. Remember, that is a Messiah. When, when Jesus says, you have said well that you have no husband, for I know you've had five, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And remember how she tries to change the subject? She goes, oh, I perceive that you're a prophet. Oh, and then she gets into a theological discussion with him. Well, we, we worship here, and you guys worship there. And, and that's when I love when Jesus says, woman. And he's not being hard. He's not exerting his masculinity. He's just pleading with her to understand. That's not the issue. I'm here to talk to you about what your issue is. And then she actually gets hopeful and she says, I know, I know enough to know that a Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll tell us everything. And I'll be shocked by it. And and then he says, I who speak to you am he. (laughs) And then she's just confronted with it. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that her conversion means, this is what it means for a person to be saved. So when you hear these terminologies, when people say, I'm saved, or I'm converted, or I'm born again, kind of these churchy code words we have in our evangelical circles, this is what we mean. Number one, you recognize you have a desperate need for forgiveness of sin, and you can't help yourself. That's what this woman all but admitted. 
She said, I'm here alone because I'm jacked up. I'm messed up. I'm the town, you know what, and everybody knows it. And she owned her junk. And she was to be known as to be loved, and to be loved as to be known. Right? Secondly, you confess or own this sin and the need and repent of your sinfulness and desire to be forgiven. She just wanted to own it. It was the first time in her life she was ever known. She looked at, the, at someone who knew her and loved her. All of a sudden, she's completely exposed and yet completely safe. <laughs> How I wish I could get you all to know what that feels like. Thirdly, you embrace and trust Jesus Christ as the only one who can forgive you, love you, and know you like that, and the, as the one who bore your sin and sinfulness. Jesus is going to die for her. And don't make a mistake about it. When news of the crucifixion of Jesus spreads through Israel, this woman knows he did that for me. This is what it means to be saved. It's not your church label. It's, it's not your, your, your resume of righteousness or even your shameful resume of all your junk. It's to just trust in Jesus. And then we saw this whole drama unfold right in verses 27 and 31 when, <laughs> when the disciples come back. Because just as Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, then the disciples show up. And what do they do? They don't look at it and go, look at Jesus showing us how to be a, an evangelist. They're like, why is he talking to her? And yet they're too stuck up and proud to even ask her, why, what do you need? And they're too stubborn to ask Jesus, why are you talking to her? They're totally absorbed in the fact that, hey, we're the inner circle of Jesus. We're, we're the guys that, we're, we're the special ones. And they completely miss the point. And then Jesus has to say to them, listen, guys, because they start figuring out, they start arguing, who bought Subway for Jesus? Like, who fed him? We went to Subway. Did somebody else go to Subway? Why did we, why, 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 why is he not hungry? But notice what he says, right? My food is to do the will of my father. He tells him, lift up your eyes, look around you and see what's obvious. You're totally consumed with everything that's not important. And so last week we learned these three things. Spiritual takes priority over the physical. In other words, people mean more to me than me feeling like it's time to eat. People are more important to me than my needs because I am energized and I am filled up when I get to help people find Jesus. Is that true of us? Secondly, urgency and passion drives our heart and our mission. We, we realize that there's an urgency and a passion to reach people that need to know Jesus the way we know him. Remember, I've quoted D.A. Carson on this. This is my favorite saying. We are simply beggars who found food who want to tell other beggars where to find it. That's what it means. He's looking at his disciples so going, listen, you got to realize you're beggars. Stop acting, like, stop acting like you're good stuff. No, start owning the fact that you're beggars. I have shown you where food is. Now go share that with everybody else. And thirdly, salvation transcends social biases and is for everyone. So whether it's a faceless, nameless Samaritan woman over 2,000 years ago or the, the white suit-wearing guy who needed Jesus and said anybody can have him or the really cool, suave 
dude who says, you know what, I was in church all my life, and yet I love this statement that Tripp uses. I, I, I lived my life, and yet, I, no, I, I, I used my words, but he said, I spit in the glory of God with my life. That, that really pinned my ears back as a kid that grew up in church. And I knew all the right things to say. I knew all the songs to sing. But I, the truth is, I was in it, but I was not of it. I had never experienced Jesus. I've been around Jesus all my life and never experienced him. Never knew him. And this was amazing to me. So ultimately, Jesus tells the disciples and us, our converted lives make us missionaries. So if you're going to leave here today with something, I want you to realize that if you're saying, I have met Jesus, I know Jesus, excellent. That means you're a missionary. You're a missionary. Missionaries are not professionals, okay? Herb Hunter and Tim Churchill are not like our professional missionaries over in South Africa. It just means they're Christians who've gone to South Africa serving Jesus. And you all are missionaries in St. John's, Newfoundland, or Bay Roberts, or Paradise, or Portugal Cove, or down in, in, in Whitless Bay, or wherever it is that you live. That's what it is. And by the way, we're made missionaries immediately. It's a universal call. It's not for the extroverted person. I know some of you might look at me, well, Steve, look at you. You must be a missionary. You could pray, make friends with a rock. Yes, you're right. I could. When I was a kid, I did. I had a friend rock, all right? Rocky and me were close, all right? But it's not just for extroverts. It's not just for the well-trained. It's not just for professionals. It's certainly not just for men or for really good women. It's not for the cleaned up. It's for all of us who've been known by Jesus and had our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our souls open to the gospel. Remember our passage again? Look at what Jesus says. If you knew the gift of God... Oh, lady, if you only knew what I'm here to offer you and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He looks at this woman and says, you have no idea what your need is. You just know you have a need and you've spent your life trying to figure it out. And I'm here to tell you, I'm the answer that you're looking for. And so today I want to, finish by learning that all conversations with Jesus that lead to conversion always result in mission. And so my one big point for all of us today, and then a couple of little points, is as we look at Jesus talking with the woman and his talk with the disciples, now I want you to see this talk with the town, and I want you to say, Lord, talk to me, all right? So here's my one big point, the talk with the town, all right? Because this is my favorite part of this passage. All right, I find myself, when I read John 4, 1 to 42, longing for this part to happen in my life, to happen in all of those around me, in our church's life, in the life of other churches in this city, because I want you to notice how this woman operates. Number one, her witness is motivated by personal experience and understanding. All right, that's what happens with her. <laughs> she simply goes back to town. Notice our passage says, she leaves her water jar. Now, don't miss that. Because that's what she took to this well. Why? Because alone, ashamed, cut off, she still had needs. She had all of her regrets, all of her fears, all of her failures crammed in her mind, but she's taken her water jar with her. Why? Because she had a physical need. But once she meets Jesus, now her priorities are different. Now, she leaves the very thing that she went out there with. All of a sudden, her life is so excited. All of a sudden... 
Drinking water is the last thing on her mind. Now she wants to dispense living water. She does, so she leaves her water jar, runs right back to town, and she simply gives them her testimony. She simply points them to Jesus, and I love the way she does it. Look at verse 29. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Notice the question. Can this be the Christ? Now, I love this about this woman. All right, She doesn't all of a sudden waltz back into town and go, I know something you don't know. Like she all of a sudden, she's not cocky. She's not all of a sudden like, yeah, I'm cleaned up now. So in your face, right? She doesn't go back for vengeance. She doesn't go back to say, see, y'all wouldn't talk with me. Now I met him. You're all a bunch of punks. No, she goes back. And maybe for the first time ever in her life, she says what everybody knows. You don't think everybody didn't talk? You don't, you don't think everybody didn't have some water cooler talk about this woman? She's divorced again. How many is that now? Oh, I think that's husband four. No, 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 that's number five. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Yeah, she's shacked up with the dude now. That's number six. She's like Elizabeth Taylor. She's running through men like you'd go through a pack of certs. Like that's the talk. And she probably hung her head or she was very angry and defensive. Now she walks up to the group that probably gossiped about her her whole life and she says, guess what, guys? I met someone who knows everything about me and loves me. Could this be the Christ? Notice what she does. She, she puts it all there. She, she knows what she is, and she pricked her own curious desire for satisfaction. You see, her power to witness is not in the delivery method. <laughs> Rather, it's in the simply, that she simply presents Jesus through the lens of her own changed life. She had probably never spoken to anybody about her life. And now all of a sudden, she walks up to this group and says, Yeah, I am messed up, and I've met the one who loves me. She's not afraid anymore. She's not ashamed anymore. Now her guilt is gone. She doesn't have to pretend. She doesn't have to act like she's got it all together. She's, she's like the man that was born blind. You remember him, which I can't wait to get to in John 8, when he's born blind and everybody's in the temple going, how did this happen? And who is Jesus? And how did this do to He goes, look, I don't know. All I know is this. I was blind. Now I can see. What do you want to know? Like that's the full extent to his testimony. Okay, she's just there and she says, I love, see, I love her humility and her cunning. She doesn't proposition the town with her theology. She doesn't come, I found the Messiah. We had a theological discussion about this mountain and that mountain and this temple. She just goes, I, I found someone who knows me and loves me. Can this be the Christ? <laughs> what if it's true? Could it be that we can be forgiven and made right? Does our past have to always define us and enslave us? And see what she does? She simply tells the town what she knows to be true and invited them to find out for themselves. Did you get that in John's testimony and Tripp's testimony? What was the power? They didn't open up and give you a big theological dissertation about how to prove the existence of God. John just said, you know what? I was an alcoholic and a, and a drug, dealer, drug dealer and a Coke user and I found Jesus and Jesus loved me and changed my life. End of story. Tripp's was... I was living a religious life and yet spitting in the face of God. And then at 14, God made himself real and it changed me. Oh, that you would see the power of a testimony that just says, 
I met him and he changed me. This is what it is. And church and Christian and all of us in this room and those of you that are downstairs right now, those of you who claim to know Jesus should be able to answer at least this one thing. Here's my challenge. What have you found to be true of Jesus? That's... That should be the one thing you should be able to answer. This is what I found to be true. The people leave and they go out and see and they aren't convinced, but they are curious. You see, they don't know if the woman is right, but they know the woman has changed. See, they don't know if she's right, but they do know she's changed. They can't deny her boldness and her honesty and her passion, her sincerity, her sharing it with them while putting herself at risk. This was a woman taking a real chance to go to this group and say, I have found someone who knows everything I did. And I wonder if her story is like when I read about, about this minor, this, uh, an old Puritan preacher during a revival in the Welsh revivals. His name was John Hutton. And the story goes, he was preaching. And while he was preaching, this gentleman leaped to his feet in the middle of his sermon, leading the whole congregation in the doxology. Now that would freak me out. All right. If somebody back here, if all of a sudden Chris leaped up and just started leading, all oh, praise to him. Oh, well, no. uh, how does the doxology go? God, praise God from whom all bless. And I, like, you know, I'd probably tap to attention. I don't know what I would do. But this is what this guy did. In the middle of a service, he just jumps up and leads the whole congregation in this. And, and of course, John Hutton's a little taken back, but he decided he'd just go with it. So later on after it, he goes to this gentleman and he explained to him that he had become a Christian only a few months and that it was all so gloriously different that he couldn't even sit still while the Bible was being read and preached. He just couldn't sit still. He said, Pastor Hutton, I was a bad lot. I drank and I pawned my furniture and I knocked my wife around. And now life is real life and splendidly worthwhile. And when asked how he feared among his fellows down in the pits of the mines, he laughed and replied, Today they asked me, you don't seriously credit that old yarn about Jesus turning water into wine. To which he had answered, I know nothing about water and wine, but I know this, that in my house, Christ has turned beer into furniture, and that's good enough miracle for me. <laughs> I don't care who you are. That's cool. <laughs> Secondly, her witness encourages us because she was successful. Notice the passage. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Why? And many more believed because of his word. My friend Paul Martin said a little while ago, being awakened to your need of Christ is not the same as trusting in Christ. Come all the way to Jesus. See, I've met a lot of people who are curious, but they don't act on their curiosity. See, this woman just went out and she got their curiosity pricked, but then they went and they followed through on it. They acted upon it. They didn't push their conviction aside. They sought Jesus out and they asked him and they said, teach me, talk to me. And, and this is where I, I think about this. I told Jennifer I was going to talk about her. Uh, a popular movie that came out uh, just early, early, I think early this year, or late last year was Guardians of the Galaxy 2. All right. Yeah. Okay. Some of you nerdy geeks and sci-fi ones watched it. All right. But there's a scene in this in which one of the characters has this way. And she's got these funky little antenna ears. 
And, but if she touches you, she, she knows you, like she knows what's in you. And, and so it, it creates a very awkward situation for this big, tough dude. She touches him, or she touches, the, sorry, the, the main character and says, basically, you have feelings for this girl, and it's all embarrassing. And, and so there's this big, ugly dude, and he laughs. He's like, ha, ha, ha. She, and then he's like, do me, do me, right? He wants, he wants to be known. And this is what's happening here. This woman comes into Samaria and says, I met a man who knows all that I've ever done. And it's like all of them run out and go, do me, do me, tell me about me, because it's safe. So many of you think that coming to Jesus means, well, I'm going to be told about all that I've done wrong. Yes. And then he's going to love you and change you and not look at you and say, you conform before I love you. He'll say, no, I'll love you and then I'll conform you. I'll radically transform you with my love. This whole town is out with Jesus because of this woman's honesty. (laughs) And notice what they say at the end of it. They say, we now know that he is the savior of Israel. No, no, no. He's the savior of Israel of the world it was a bunch of Samaritans not Jews who were the first ones to say that Jesus is the Savior of the world and now we've come full circle in just four chapters back in John chapter 129 John the Baptist says behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to that this one is indeed the Savior of the world Jesus is the Savior of the world. Do you realize that? And more than that, do you believe it? There's no other Savior for you or for anybody else. And folks, we live in a world that looks for saviors all the time. Some people look for their Savior in a doctor. Some in a politician. Others of you try to find your Savior in your grades. Some of you look for a Savior in a woman or a man or relationships. Some of you find your Savior in parents or in alcohol or drugs. Some in sex or power or a job or money or your looks or your stuff. Name it and humanity has tried to worship it and still is. But who can forgive and satisfy eternally? Who can save us from death and fear and guilt and shame? Only Jesus can make you right with God. To be loved is to be known, and to be known is to be loved. And so this is what it looks like to be a witness. There's so much to learn from this woman. This faceless, nameless Samaritan woman is really the obedient one. Jesus is the hero, but she's the obedient one. The disciples... Get, represent really so much of us, don't they? They get focused on the wrong stuff. They make the wrong stuff the priority. They miss the point. But in the town of St. John's or Mount Pearl or Portugal Cove or Paradise or CBS or all those around us, this is a town surrounding us needy, but they don't know what their need is. They're lost and they're searching just by the way like we once were. And see how Jesus changes this woman's life. The early church father, Cyril, on this verse, he says, he began by bidding the woman to go and call her husband. But the end of the conversation which ensued was her going and calling all the men of the city to come and see Christ. She doesn't just call one, she calls them all. And they listen. We live in a special time. The fact that this woman was successful encourages us encourages us because we know that God has called us to this as well. 
Leon Morse puts it like this. The task is not some insignificant one where it does not matter how much, whether or not it is done. Jesus is talking about work in a field where the eternal welfare of people is at stake. And when you and I simply share with other people what Jesus has done for us, listen to me, look at me. God will use you to help others find him. And you don't have to be some sort of fancy theologian. You just have to be willing, like this woman, to go, come see him. Could this be the Christ? You don't have to win the argument. Just invite people to engage. Love on them. And remember what Jesus says. He goes, listen, you are laboring. And it talks about the whole reaping and sowing and all this. It reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you've believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now let me tell you the end of this. I love Revelation. I love the old Southern Gospel song that says, I've read the back of the book and we win. All right? That's how people, that's a great way to approach Revelation. All right? Don't make it all Star Warsy. Just remember, you read the end, we win. All right? Because of Jesus. But in Revelation 5, here's what we're told. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people, got, listen to this, from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you may and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You know what this means? We can be witnesses because this tells us we will be successful. You can share the gospel in the face of a thousand rejections and still know that God will save someone because of your testimony. Because the promise at the end is he is going to have a people from everywhere around the globe for him one day. So listen, don't be timid. Don't be shy. Don't be discouraged. Get busy. Be like Nike. Swoosh. Just do it. All right? So what do we take away from this in five minutes? <laughs> Here we go. Number one, Jesus knows who we are and how we feel. Oh, if there's one thing I wish I could get you to take away from here as I look into your faces and your lives is to know what a friend we have in Jesus. He's your friend because he's your Savior and Lord. He's the one who knows how you feel. He knows your weaknesses and your struggles. He knows the effect of a cursed creation. He knows your fear and your hunger and your thirst and your desperation. For some of you, He knows your rejection. In all of these areas that you have known this, He was perfect. He lived the life that we know we should live, that we wish we could live, that we've longed to live, but no, we can't. It's the vicious reality that we all know too well, yet right here and right now, you and I, each with our struggles with the degree that which we will admit this. But listen to the words of Peter who said, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Why? So that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, get this, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Church, listen to me. You are known and you are loved. He is the one who knows you. You you can't hide from him. See, you can fool me and I can fool you. I can get dressed up like this and I can shake everybody's hands and smile and I can act like I got it all together. Meanwhile, inside, I can be dying. But he knows and he loves me. He knows some of you that look in a mirror when you see nothing but ugly when actually you are beautiful and he loves you even as you deal with your self-image. For some of you that maybe have been abandoned or hurt or abused or betrayed and you feel like life's not fair, he loves you and knows you. For some of you, you're ashamed and guilty by your mistakes and your sin and you realize you've screwed up and you'd be deathly embarrassed or mortified if everybody here even knew a tenth of the stuff you have thought and done and he knows it all and he loves you. He's not embarrassed by you because he paid for it. Number two, Jesus is God and he is the God who seeks you. Remember this woman, he had to go through Samaria. This wasn't a happenstance. This wasn't a fluke. It wasn't like, well, it was just it was just karma worked and Jesus happened to be there when she happened to be. No, no, he knew what he was doing. He knew she was going to be there. Some of you are here in church. You didn't know you were coming to church. Some of you made a last minute decision to come to church and you're here because God is seeking for you. He wants to know you. I read this week, Christian salvation is universal in its offer, but particular in its application. Hmm. Jesus, while experiencing real human struggle, still walks through Samaria for the one-on-one with the least of humanity as the world defined it. You see, religion is man's attempt at finding God or creating God or even being God, but all of it leads to empty shame promoting delusion and corruption. Take that to the bank. Because whether you're looking right or right looking or right talking or religiously upstanding or you're the morally corrupt woman who, by the way, had a religion of her own, you both need to see and believe in Jesus Christ. Trip Lee was the guy who lived the perfect life and still needed Jesus. John was the guy who did everything wrong and still needed Jesus. And the same Jesus went looking for them both. So wherever you are on that spectrum, Jesus here today is looking for you. Thirdly, Jesus calls us all to know and respond to who he really is. It's not a passive thing. It's not, here I am. And you're like, thanks. I'll get back to you. Every time you make a decision, it is a response. Her evangelistic method is simply telling other people how Jesus came into her life and worked. And so my question for all of us here today, has Jesus come into your life and worked? She was an outcast. Her influence, nil. 
Her respectability, nada. Her finances, she had none. But she met Jesus and was radically changed by her love. Oh, friends, like J.C. Ryle puts it so well, just as a parent is pleased with the efforts of his little child to please him, though it be only by picking a daisy or walking across the room, so is our Father in heaven pleased with the poor performances of his believing children. He looks at the motive, principle, and intention of their actions and not merely at their quantity and quality. He regards them as members of his own dear son. Just respond. Respond to him. Can I ask you, have you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord? The woman at the well did. Can I ask you, has your life been changed by the fact that Jesus has made himself known to you? The woman at the well was completely changed. Can I ask you, has that known love now created a concern for others in you? Because my last point is this. Jesus calls his followers to be like him in reaching out. Oh, Calvary Baptist Church, let us not be like the disciples and miss the point. Let us be like the Samaritan woman who go and want people to know Jesus. You see, so many folks in your neighborhood, in your family, at the classroom that you sit in, where you work, at the schoolroom that you're at, your neighborhood, so many folks, they don't even know they need Jesus. They don't know that Jesus loves them. They don't know that Jesus came to die for them. They know something's wrong, but not what's wrong. Trust me, everybody out there knows it. But Jesus humbled himself. He placed himself in need. He actually started this conversation by asking a woman of ill repute for help. Can I, those of you that claim to be Christians, do we? Do we do that? Are we living life, though, like we don't have needs, like we don't have stresses, like we don't have problems, or that we don't need a favor? Do we live life with those around us who need Jesus and show them how they can come into our lives and we can work with them in theirs? Jesus wasn't walled off from the world. He interacted with the world, knowing full well that the world was full of sinners, bad people, and bad people doing bad things and thinking that they were doing good. They all had false beliefs, but Jesus didn't treat folks as enemies, but as people. They were souls created in the image of God. And it breaks my heart when Christians talk more about created nature than created human beings church who's drawn to us can anyone come here and feel completely comfortable to be known and to be loved can it be safe here to unburden yourself or do we even unintentionally send a message that we've got it all together and we figured it all out because if we do that's disgraceful When anybody walks into this room and looks at us, if we call this place, they should see a bunch of people that are wrecked and have found the one who fixed us. Not see a bunch of people who think we are fixed and we are here to fix you. That's not the gospel. Folks, do we believe that people matter? whether it's your real estate agent or your carpet cleaners, your bankers, the person who cuts your hair, salespeople, the person that delivers your mail, your doctors or the nurses that work with you that we depend on and need and we need them. But when they watch and see how we handle the daily grind and the ups and downs of life, it will naturally open doors for much deeper, more life-changing conversations. If all you do is think of witnessing as a, t- a chance to win a debate or declare what and who we are and hope that folks want, want it, no matter matter what or how hard or cold that approach is, then you're lost. Why bother? 
Christians, we need to show our friends and neighbors and all those around them what Jesus offered this woman in town. If you knew this gift of God. But to do that, the gift of God must mean something wonderful and precious to you. I close with he cares for you. He loves you. He knows you. He gives up everything for you. He offers you forgiveness. He offers to make you right with God. Funny thing is, how much talk of being thirsty is all throughout the Bible. And every time, the only one who can satisfy is Jesus. So friends, have you freely taken of Jesus the life-giving, life-changing spiritual water of cleansing he offers you today? And if you've tasted it, go give it to other people so that your testimony can be as simple as, it is well with my soul. And it can be with yours. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to share you and your word. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you and they've got questions, oh, Father, give them a comfort level to come and ask. If there are Christians here that need prayer or a hug or, Father, need to be reminded that you are going to use them and you love them, oh, Father, would you release people here to know the freedom of being known and loved? But, oh, God, would you change us as a church? Would you get our minds off the priority of things that don't matter? Help us to stop missing the point. Oh, comfort those that are hurting. Father, give the drink of spiritual love and life to those that are thirsty. And, Lord, awaken us all to the need. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.